Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. So kind Father, right here, right now, my prayer is that this wouldn't just be another ho-hum, check the box, I went to church, then I'm going to go watch football after church and go to lunch day, but that today something supernatural would happen in this room. I pray that the Spirit of God would move this room right now. Move in our hearts as Lori comes to speak. I pray that, that the word of God would do the work of God in my heart this morning as I listen and in every heart as we listen. I pray for every heart in this place that, that we would be not hard or hardened, but that we would be tender and responsive and that the seed that's planted would bear fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to say as Lori comes to speak, in this Wise series, I am going to go after, why do we allow women to speak in <laughs> church? There's a lot of churches in town that don't allow women to speak. We're going to go after that in a few weeks. You're not going to want to miss that. I'm not talking on that. You're not talking on that. No, I, well, I, 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 I'll let you off the hook. Hey, <laughs> yeah. let's welcome Lori to the stage. <laughs> Well, it's so great to be here, and I have the privilege of continuing, really, what John started last week, and he ended the series in Second Peter talking about the Bible and why we can trust it. So we thought, why not start our Why series on why actually read the Bible, because it doesn't do really that much good if you have a Bible you can trust that you never actually read. And I think for a lot of us, um, especially this upcoming culture. I know I'm old, but I just feel like everyone should actually own an actual book of the Bible. Does anyone else agree with that? I think that there's something about the actual book of the Bible that opening it, that you can see it, that you can leaf through it, that you can see the bigness of the stories, and I just want to lobby for that. If you are using your iPhone, I think it's awesome. I do it too when I'm on the go, but just to have an actual Bible but maybe for some of you, you're like, you know, Lori, I, I have a Bible, and I've cracked it open, and I, frankly, I don't get much out of it. And maybe that's why you come to church, and you hear what you do up here, and you think, now that makes sense. But then you go home, and you open your Bible, and it's like, I don't really get it. And I understand that, because sometimes we have issues with translation when it comes to the Bible. In fact, I was able to uh, call up on the internet some comments that were actually made by kids after they went to Sunday school. So maybe you've asked your kids after O Kids, like, what did you learn today? I have a teenager, so I get not much. Um, but uh, maybe if you have younger kids, they, they might actually tell you what they've learned. And these were some of the things that some kids said. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. <laughs> Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. 
the first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. <laughs> the greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he actually obeyed him. <laughs> You have to know a little bit about scripture to really get that one. Unleavened bread is bread made with no ingredients. I'd like to say that about gluten-free bread too. No, I'm kidding. A Christian, this is my favorite one, a Christian should have only one wife and that is called monotony. <laughs> Solomon had 100 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> And when Mary heard she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. So, you know, some things can get lost in translation. And it doesn't just happen for kids. There's an old story, and I'm sure John will remember it, but an old story that I haven't heard told in a long time, but it's worth telling this, mo this morning. It's about the Prince of Granada. And there was some sort of, uh, and this was years and years ago, there was some sort of military coup. And so the prince was actually put in solitary confinement because they didn't want him to get the throne. He was the heir to the Spanish throne. They did not want him to get it. So he was put in solitary confinement, and all he had in his jail cell was one book, and that book was the Bible. So after 33 years, 33 years of being in solitary confinement with nothing, no distraction, nothing, all he had was the Bible, they went into his jail cell after he died, and they saw etchings all over the wall, and they thought, oh, my word, now we are going to get the jewels that this man, having no distractions, found in the Word of God. And so I'd like to read you, and I think they're going to come up on the screen, some of the things that they read on the walls. The eighth verse of the 97th Psalm is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest. No word or name of more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. I did not want to spare you any more of those incredible life-changing facts this morning. But clearly, we have someone who missed the point. And I wonder how many of us pick up this book and maybe John and I were just talking about this. Maybe you even give it a chance. You go, okay, Lord, you're big. You can lead me. And, you know, it's like, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. You know, I'm just not really getting much out of this thing that everybody says I should be getting a lot out of. So what I want to do this morning, and I actually, after speaking to the OKID staff, bless their hearts, I ended up cutting half my sermon because there was so much in it that I wanted to give. It was a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, though. So hopefully this morning, you will walk out of here with giving this book another chance. Why read the Bible? And I want to look at the verse that is actually in your program that um, is at the top. And this is kind of the theme of this morning. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You know that word for knife that cuts between the joints and marrow, soul and spirit, is actually the same word that was used for Peter's sword. And you know that that sword actually was used 
when he, because he was a fisherman, in cutting fish. So it's this idea of the word of God just gets in there. What makes this book different from every other book that you pick up? You know, I think we're pretty good in this culture about reading books about the Bible. But where we, I think, are struggling is how do we still get relevant truth from this book that has been around since the beginning of our faith? All the people in it, as John said last week, that wrote about their experience of God through so many walks of life, through so long of life, it is worth picking up because it is alive and powerful. Other translations say, alive and active, quick and powerful, living and effective. So let's get some of that this morning. What I want to do is talk to you about three things the Bible gives us, and I'm going to kind of highlight some passages that you can definitely look at later, because I'm not going to have time to tell every story. But the first thing that we get from the Bible is community. And what I mean by that is that there are people in here, stories in here about people that went through everything we go through. They just were doing it at a different culture. But piecing apart the cultural kind of where it comes through, the wrapping that it comes through, you can find some deep truth that really is relevant to your life. And I just have three examples. The example of Hagar. You know, when John was talking about my new book, that was the chapter that he said, if you buy the 40 verses book, this is the one verse that really spoke to him. And I think it speaks to a lot of people because the story of Hagar is really the sub-story of Abraham and Sarah. She was the victim that was recruited into a menage a trois, not really, but um, I mean, a variation of it. It wasn't quite that. But Sarah actually recruited her because she couldn't wait any longer for God's promise. And you, know, you got to give Sarah some credit because she was 80 when she got the promise that she was going to have a baby. You can imagine in a couple of years, you're going, this thing is not going to happen. And I am old. And I'm going to be in depends and diapers at the same time. So let's get this thing going, right? And so, and she's, so she's thinking God's never going to do it. And even though God promised her that, that she was going to do it, she did it the cultural way. And if you look in the book of Genesis, you will see that this was a common practice. Jacob had babies with two of his wives and the maidservants. It was sort of done in that culture. So it wasn't deviant that Sarah suggested this. But he, she went to, to Abraham and said, hey, you know what? God's not doing this, and I don't know when he's going to do this, so maybe that's why Hagar's here. And so why don't you go ahead and sleep with Hagar? And I can only imagine Abraham's reaction. Oh, okay, honey, if that's what you want. Um, anyway, they, they slept together, and they had this baby, and Hagar was the victim. So she gets pregnant, and then, of course, Sarah gets jealous. And that so often happens to us when we take control, when we can't wait for God anymore. So what happens is she creates a solution, and then she doesn't like her solution. So she mistreats Hagar, and she's sent away. And the beauty of Hagar's story is that it speaks to anybody in this place who has been victimized by someone in power. I don't know what your situation is, but if you are here and you have been victimized by a boss, by a spouse, by somebody in power, Hagar is where you should look. Genesis 16, you read that story because she ends up in a desert all alone crying out to God. And do you know that God finds her there? He leaves the story of Abraham and Sarah and he pursues Hagar and she calls him the God who sees me. 
There's power here to help us go on, to recognize that you are seen by God. And then the second story about Elijah, 1 Kings 19. The big story about Elijah is 1 Kings 18, where he has the showdown of the gods, and God does this amazing thing. But in 1 Kings 19, he's totally depressed and wants to die. Have you ever been like that after a spiritual high? I know that I have. Maybe some of you who have gotten baptized on the beach or you've been here on a Sunday morning and come forward and then you walk out the door and get in fights with your spouses. I mean, I know what that's like. And sometimes we just come down from the spiritual high. Well, Elijah knows what it's like. And God met him. And you know what he said to Elijah? First thing he said, Elijah, you need to take a nap. You need to eat something and take a nap. And some of you here today, you need to eat something and something good, okay? Not gluten-free, something good. <laughs> eat something good and remember God's goodness and then take a nap and remember you need rest because you're a human being and you have boundaries. And God said that to Elijah. And then he was able to meet him again. And he met him in a still, small voice. See, God sometimes shows up in big ways, but sometimes he shows up in very small ways that if we're not paying attention, we can't see. So if you want a story about how God meets you, read 1 Kings 18 and 19. And then the third story, my favorite, Habakkuk, which is a book I'm sure many of you have memorized. Habakkuk is a tiny little book in the Old Testament. It was actually Mike Iaconelli who first showed me this prophet because he served at a time when God was doing nothing that anybody could see. And he said to Habakkuk, just wait, just wait, just wait. But do you know how the book ends? The book ends, and I think, Andy, we've got the scripture. This is how it ends. This isn't the middle of the book. This is how it ends. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk looks at his circumstances, and they're different than ours. I don't have an olive crop, although I'm thinking about it because I consume so much olive oil. But we may have different circumstances. But how many of you have felt this way? Nothing is happening. God, where are you? I don't see you anywhere. You read that book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. And you learn how to have a defiant faith because Habakkuk believed God would show up, and he did. And that's what we see in Scripture. So the Bible gives us community. And I would say as a sidebar note, the Bible's meant to be read in community. See, that was the problem with the Prince of Granada. He was all by himself. He needed a Bible study. He needed a small group in that jail cell. He needed someone to say, no, 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 you're missing the point. Look at this. Let me show you. We need help knowing where to look in the Bible. So it should be read in community. And then the second thing the Bible gives us is wisdom. Wisdom. You know, we all have these verses we love. And, uh, and what tends to happen, and this was partly the reason I wrote the book, 40 Verses, is I wanted to look at some of the other verses that we don't look at. And, uh, and we have the verses we love, but we, we may post them all over social media, but we don't have any idea what the context of those verses is. And there's so much wisdom in the context. 
So Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you know that verse. It was my life verse. I painted on a tile before I even knew what was in the chapter or anything about it. This is the promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I thought that meant that I was going to be rich and never suffer. Sign me up. You know, I was like, this is awesome. I think this is going to be great following God. Well, I've come to realize that prospering in God's view is a little bit different than what I had in mind with prospering. Because prospering in God's view is prospering spiritually. And do you know that this verse, this promise verse that we claim and we go, God, you've got my future, was actually written to a group of people, the Israelites, who were in exile. They were where they weren't supposed to be or didn't want to be. And if you look, it's actually, if, again, I don't know if you can see this on your iPhone, but if you look in your Bible, you can see that heading right on Jeremiah 29, a letter to the exiles. This verse was spoken to a people who were where they didn't want to be. And I wonder how many of you feel that way this morning. Hopefully not here in church, but I mean, where you, where you, you know, you're, you're this way circumstantially in your life. You're where you don't want to be. And God speaks this verse. But you know what, what, is, what happens a little earlier in the chapter? And this is the one I want to highlight. Verse 4 through 7, and I think we have it up on the screen. I just kind of paraphrased it. But here's what it says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you. Not that you've gone on your own to which I have called you into exile. In other words, if you're where you don't want to be, settle in. Settle in and see what God has for you there. See, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a season I don't want to be, my bags are packed. I'm just looking at the door, waiting for God to lead me out. God, please, get me out of here. And our, we are so focused on that that we forget that there are some things happening around us that we need to participate in, apparently. That's why God has us here. And he's working in us and around us. And that's what we're going to see in the third point. Maybe just a couple things as I was talking to John before the sermon. To, if you're thinking, okay, where else do I find wisdom? That's good, Lori, Jeremiah 29. Let me just suggest that if you're opening this book for the first time, which I hope you will after church if you haven't yet, maybe start with the New Testament. Start with the Sermon on the Mount. There is so much wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount. That's found in Matthew 5. And you can just read through that. Those are Jesus' words, and there's just so much wisdom in there. A book in the Old Testament I would recommend is the book of Ecclesiastes. Incredible wisdom in there. So maybe start with some of those places instead of just at the beginning, because you're going to get bogged down when it comes to Leviticus, trust me. So you, you, you want to read the Bible differently, and you can read it differently because it's living and active. And then the last point is where I want to spend just a little time unpacking a story. The Bible gives us perspective. I love that word. Perspective. It helps us see the big picture of how God works. And I think we see that one of the most clearest places we see that in Scripture is the story of Joseph. And this isn't the Joseph and Mary story, but this is the story of Joseph, you know, with the Technicolor dream coat, the one that you've probably seen the play on. There's a whole 13 chapters of his story in Genesis. It starts in Genesis 37 and goes to the end. That's an entire story you can read. And as you read the story, you realize how 
much God is doing in our lives and how it looks so confusing sometimes. Joseph is this cocky teenager, frankly, when he first we get introduced to him, Genesis 37. He has this dream. God shows him he's going to be the best of all his brothers and rule over them someday. So he came out to tell them this great news, and you can imagine how thrilled they were. And I'm sure that would go over really big in your households if one of your kids did that. And so they were obviously jealous. They ended up, you know, uh, putting him in uh, this hole where he got discovered, and he ended up um, becoming a servant. But he just made the best of his situation everywhere he went. And as he was a servant, pretty soon the boss's wife starts coming on to him. Yes, this is in the Bible. And he ends up running out of the house because he does not want to sleep with her. And he leaves his cloak behind. So she has it. She calls rape. And he ends up in jail. Nothing he did. He's in jail. And so he's sitting there trying to be the best prisoner he can be. And all of a sudden, one day, the cupbearer and the baker from Pharaoh's palace show up in jail. They had done something that did, didn't please the Pharaoh. And so they end up having these troubling dreams. And Joseph, of course, interprets their dreams. And when they leave, the baker is going to get killed. But the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's palace. And Joseph says, don't forget me when you go back. And then if you look at Genesis 41.1. It's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, and we, we totally pass by it. It says, and so for two full years, Joseph stayed in jail. The cupbearer forgot all about him, went out of her mind, his mind completely. And so now Joseph's in jail. But see, we read past that verse because we're reading things so fast. We, we assume things happen so fast. No, two years he sat in jail. Nothing was happening. That's what's beautiful about this story. It shows the timing. But you know what's interesting is it also shows God's purposes for the timing. And that's what we don't always see when we're going through it, right? So the purpose was that the cupbearer forgot and God was in charge because the cupbearer remembered when Pharaoh had a dream. And the dream was about the famine that was to come. And so when Joseph actually did come out of jail to interpret this dream, he then could be put in position of power, not only for himself, but to save so many people because he could help Pharaoh begin to collect and prepare for this famine. So you see these stories going on, and we are so myopic in our story. Have you ever noticed that? We're just thinking about ourselves. This isn't happening for me. Why isn't this happening for me? Why isn't... I thought... And all of this stuff, and God is working on all these levels around us, in people around us. He's working inside of you, around you, to line things up. Joseph ended up getting out of jail at just the right time. But I don't think he felt that way when he was sitting in jail for two years. I know that there are times in my life where I'm like, what are you doing? Where are you? And that is why this can be so encouraging. And the best is we see God's plan in Joseph's story. Because at the end of the book, when his brothers end up having to come from their land over to Egypt to get food because everybody's starving, and Egypt's the only place that has food because of Joseph, there he is, unrecognizable because he was looked Egyptian. And as his brothers came before him, instead of being the cocky teenager he was, because of life's experience, he had been humbled. And so he could love them and forgive them. And it's a beautiful story because, see, brothers and sisters, God was not just at work around Joseph. 
God was at work in Joseph. And God's not just at work around you. He's at work in you. And some of the stuff that you're going through that you don't understand and the circumstances that are happening are actually doing something in you that you need. They are preparing you for something. They are building your character. They're doing something that, no, you'd never choose, but boy, when you go through it, you look back and you go, I'm so glad that happened. That's why I call him the God of the rearview mirror. So you hold on. That's what the Bible says. Hold on. The story is much bigger, much bigger than you think because you have a God who is much, much bigger than you think. And when you don't understand and you're in the middle of it where a lot of us are this morning, I just invite you, brothers and sisters, to pick up this Bible because you will find company. You will find people who got just as confused as we did, went through just the same things we do, and you will find a God that is bigger than you ever could have conceived. And I want to invite the band up here because we're going to sing a closing song. And as they come up, I want to show you a meme. It's one of my favorite memes that I saw one time. I think this represents so much the smallness of the story that we hold. We hold our small story with all our might. And when things aren't happening the way we want them to be happening, we are just angry and we don't understand. And God is asking us to trade our little small perspective, our small story, for the bigness of the story he has. But there's a catch, and you see it on the screen. We can't see it. We can't see it. It's like, let's make a deal. Am I going to really trust this God? Am I going to actually say, I know you have the best for me? Am I going to give up my small story and trade it for the bigness of the story you have by faith? Am I going to do that even when I don't understand? That's what I want to invite you to do this morning. And we're going to sing a song. And during this song, I want to just invite you um, to, to maybe just put your hands in your lap and, and have your hands open. What is it you're holding this morning? What is it you're holding? What is it that you need to be willing to give in exchange for the bigness of the story that God is writing? Because you know what? The Bible stopped in Revelation but God's stories are being written still today, and they're being written in our lives. And so as you hold whatever it is you're holding, would you be willing to give it to God? Would you be willing to receive the bigness of the story he has for you? To go back into your very life, your very circumstances, and say, God, I don't understand it, but I am willing to live it because this is where you have me. I trust that you are at work and that you are not finished and that I'm in the middle of my story and you will show up and I will see you. I trust you even when I can't see what you are doing. I trust you. I trust you for my kids, my families, my friends, everybody around me, but mainly, Lord, I trust you for me and my heart. So God... I pray for all of my brothers and sisters and myself that we are able to let go and embrace the bigness of who you are. 
in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. There will be some prayer team people up here. If during the song you want to come forward for prayer, please feel free to do that. Before you re-enter your day, we hope that you will take just a few moments to pause and respond to what God has put on your heart through this message. Thank you again for listening to the Ocean Hills podcast. For access to more sermons, visit the Watch and Listen page on OceanHills.org or find them on the Ocean Hills app.